before we jump in here. Um, so here on November, the weekend of November 18th, 19th, and 20th, um, The Chosen season three is being released, uh, the first two episodes in movie theaters. And uh, right, I'm excited about that. And I know some of you gave me a hard time when we began this John series, how we would use The Chosen a lot. And somebody asked me the other day, he goes, Pastor Mark, why don't we use The Chosen anymore? I'm like, because we're ahead of it, you know? And um, so they haven't released any more seasons. But so what we're doing as a church, we have rented a movie theater for Sunday night, November 20th at 7 p.m. And there we're gonna show the first two episodes, okay? Um, tickets will go on sale tomorrow online through social media. Uh, you can click on the link that we'll throw on, put on our social medias. If you're, if you're a person that uh, is unfamiliar with that technology, such as me, you can come right across the street to our church offices and you can buy your tickets. They're $10 a piece. That'll kind of help offset uh, the cost of the rental movie theater. Uh, it is, uh, uh, there is limited seating. So you want to uh, be able to uh, go ahead and get your tickets for that. So that's November 20th. It's a Sunday night. And also uh, a new character is introduced in season three and we're gonna have him with us that night. Uh, and he's just gonna tell us about his experience of working on the set of The Chosen and with Dallas, the director, and so it's going to be a great night. I want to make you aware of that. And so you've got three weeks. If you haven't watched season one and two, okay, you have two options. Either watch season one and two, binge it before, you know, November 20th, or spoiler alert, just read the Bible, okay? And, uh, and that'll tell you, you know, that'll kind of catch you up. Um, so anyway, uh, and we, we, are closing, we are closing fast on the end of our uh, series on John, and we've been looking at the life of Jesus and the life that he calls us to as his followers. And today's passage is, a, is about uh, the meeting between Pilate uh, and, and Jesus. And uh, Pilate uh, begins to interrogate Jesus, uh, you know, in, in, in saying, you know, are you the king of the Jews? And in the middle of the interrogation, Jesus is, you know, not only, he's going after Pilate's heart. I mean, he's trying to reveal who he is um, to Pilate. And, and, and what Jesus ultimately ends up asking Pilate is, uh, you know, where do you stand in regards to me? And, and that's a question that we all need to answer someday. If not today, why not today? That we need to answer the question, who is Jesus to us? Who, who is Jesus and what role does he play? What authority does he have in in our lives. And so, so Jesus, you know, goes after Pilate and he says, you know, who do you stand, where do you stand in regards to me? But what we see in this passage, uh, we also see this confrontation is about power. And that Pilate, he represents the Roman Empire, which was, you know, he was the governor of this region. Israel uh, is, you know, under Roman authority. And uh, the Roman Empire was the greatest political power the world had ever seen up to this point. And in um, the gospel writers, all of them include this, this scene between Pilate and Jesus to teach us how Christianity relates to power. And so uh, three things this morning that we're gonna see, let me give them to you up front. Um, what we're gonna see this morning is the limits of power, uh, the problem with power, and the transformation of power. So, so three things, we see the limits of power, the problem with power, and the transformation of power in our lives. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to 
uh, invite you to turn to John chapter 18 this morning. John chapter 18, if you don't have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen for you. Or you can pull it up on your phone. But um, we have, I think, two, two sermons left in this series. And then, and then we're on to Christmas. So there we go. So limits of power. Let's jump in in uh, verse 28 of chapter 18. It says, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, he was the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor, that's Pilate, and by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. And so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to accuse anyone, they objected. And this took place to fulfill what Jesus has said about the kind of death that he was going to die. So, so here, here's the deal. The Jewish leaders, they realize that uh, if they're going to execute Jesus, that they are going to uh, need Rome's help because they did not have the power to execute their own criminals because they were under Roman authority. And so they start kissing up to the governor uh, of this section of the Roman Empire uh, to try to get him to do their dirty work. Verse 33. says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Now, now, Jesus, I mean, Pilate is not asking Jesus a theological question, okay? He doesn't care if Jesus is the Messiah or not, okay? And the Messiah was the one that God had promised to send to the people of Israel to deliver the people of Israel. And they've been holding on to this promise that was hand, that's been handed down and handed down after generation, after generation, after generation. And many of the people of Israel, they thought the Messiah was gonna be this a military figure and uh, would rise up a great army and kick the Romans out and make Israel a superpower again. But Pilate, he, he doesn't care if uh, the Messiah... Uh, if Jesus is the Messiah or not. And Jesus re said, verse 36, um, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my, now my kingdom is in another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born that came into the world to testify to the truth and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So, so Pilate, he, he's, not, he's not really asking, you know, um, if, if Jesus is the Messiah. What he's really asking, uh, and he reveals his, his fear here, he's asking, he's saying, you know, are you Jesus a political leader? You know, are, are Jesus, are, are you going to lead a political movement? In other words, are you going to cause up trouble? Or are you going to lead an insurrection? And are, are you here to, to undermine Roman, Rome's power? And, and more importantly, and this is where Pilate's heading is, are you, gonna, are you the kind of person who's going to undermine my power? See, power is the ability to make people do things. And, and that's what Pilate enjoyed the most. That's what he cherished the most. He enjoyed having this title because power went with this title and power is the ability to make people do things. And Jesus says two things to Pilate. 
In verse 36, Jesus says, I am not a king because I'm not of this world. But in verse 37, Jesus says, I am a king and I'm coming into this world. Now, to kind of really get the big picture of what Jesus is communicating here, if we back up a little bit to where we were last week in, um, in John chapter 18, when Peter pulls out a sword and he cuts off that guy's ear, and, and Jesus says to Peter, Peter, put your sword away. Do not draw your sword in my name. And, and, and the sword in scripture, it represents strength. It represents power. And uh, what Jesus was saying here to Pilate and to Peter and to us, he's saying that I, I don't, uh, I do not want my kingdom to move forward through political power. And Jesus is also saying, I don't want anyone waging war in my name. And Jesus says, I am a king and I have come to bear witness to the truth and I'm not coming into the world as a political leader, okay? And my plan is much grander than that. But Jesus says, I am a king and I'm coming into the world to change the hearts of men and women and I'm going to do that with my truth. So what changed the Roman Empire is the truth of Jesus impacting how Christians lived. And maybe that's our second homework question. The first homework question is we all need to spend some time asking and answering, who is Jesus to me? What authority does he have in my life? Second homework question we need to spend time with uh, asking ourselves and answering is what, what does the truth of Jesus impact the way I live? Is my life any different from the people that do not believe in, in Jesus? It, it, do I act any different? Do I, do I talk any different? Do I think any different? Do I serve any different? Is there any difference in my life because of the truth of Jesus Christ? That's what we need to answer for ourselves. So, so what, what changed the Roman Empire is the truth of Jesus impacting how Christians lived. Now, don't check out on me on these next few points, okay? Stay with me, okay? And, and just know that my goal is not to offend anyone, but we're all gonna be offended here, okay? And so my email address is thomas at gospel. No, you can send it to me. I'm a big boy, I can handle it. The early Christian community looked way more conservative than the dominant culture around them. The early Christian community looked way more conservative than the culture around them. The early Christian community was the first community in the world to decide that abortion was wrong. You see, in this, in this first century Roman culture, um, it was up to the mother and father to decide if they wanted to keep this baby or not. And if they didn't want to keep the baby, they would throw the baby out into the field to die of either exposure to the elements or let wild animals have their way with the baby. And many times, these babies were baby girls because women and girls were not valued in this first century Roman culture. And this first century Roman, this first century Christian culture were the first ones to stand up and say, that's wrong. And they didn't just say that that was wrong, but they did something about it. They didn't just pray, God, do something about it. They became answers to their own prayers and they began adopting these discarded babies at a very high rate. 
This early Christian community was the first community to say that, that there's, there should be no sex outside of marriage for anyone. See, in this first century Roman culture, it was very acceptable for husbands to have multiple mistresses and multiple affairs, and everybody turned a blind eye, but it was illegal for a woman to do that, for a wife to do that. And you just had to live with it. There was nothing you can do if you were a wife. It was culturally acceptable for your husband to have multiple affairs, multiple mistresses. And this early Christian community were the first ones to say, no, that's wrong. And that sex is for a husband and a wife inside of marriage, a marriage covenant. And it was these conservative rules in the Christian communities that caused families to flourish and to thrive and to grow. Now, on the other hand, this early Christian community looked way more liberal than the culture around them. Way more liberal. That the gospel says that every single person is a sinner saved by grace, which means we are all on equal footing at the foot of the cross. And this This first century Christian culture was the first group of people that brought people together from uh, from different backgrounds. That it was the first room where where a slave and a free person could, could sit together and be friends. It was the first Community that a, that a woman and a man could be brothers and sisters in Christ and, and be equal. It was the first um, community, it was the first room that a rich man and a poor man could sit together and be friends. And that was not the way it was done in this first century Roman culture. The, the, the early Christian community, it was the first community to embrace immigration and say it doesn't matter what country you're from because we are all aliens. When we accept Christ and we become part of the kingdom of God, this is not our home, but heaven is our home. And so we are all aliens. And this was the first community to embrace people regardless of their race or ethnicity. This early Christian community was the first community to embrace generosity and welfare. Because the rich and the middle class Christians would give generously of their income, their personal income, to help their brothers and sisters in need. And that was not done in this first century Roman culture. And so when it came to family, the Christian church was more conservative than culture. And when it came to welfare and race and immigration, it was more liberal than the surrounding culture. And the Christian community was far more attractive than the culture around them. And as a result, culture changed. Now, the great historian Rodney Starks from the 20th century, he writes this. Just see if this, what he writes this about the first century Christians, but see how it relates. 
He writes, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the Greco-Roman world. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fire, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. I wonder if that could be written about us. That we're a small group of brothers and sisters in Christ who lock arms and make people's lives a little more tolerable because of the way the truth of Jesus Christ is lived out in us. And I think what that means for us is for the follower, for the, for the Christian, for, for the disciple of Jesus Christ, that we have to stop standing behind our political parties and political platforms first. And we need to start standing behind the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we follow Christ and his truth impacts the way that we live, we should be considered more, we should be considered too liberal for our conservative friends and too conservative for our liberal friends because we're following Jesus Christ. I was hoping for an amen, but it's okay. I I don't don't need your pity, amen. Amen. No, <laughs> I know this is hard, but, but here's the deal. The countercultural, this countercultural movement was more attractive than the dominant culture. And by 300 AD, Christianity turned the Roman Empire upside down. Not by numbers, because the vast majority of Romans we're not Christians, but it was turned upside down because of practice, because men and women lived out the truth of Jesus in their lives. The truth of Jesus changes the hearts and minds of people. So that's the limits of power. Now that we're all equally offended, let's move on. So what's the problem with power? Well, let's go back to 37 and 38. Um, Pilate says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify the truth. And everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Verse 38, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again and said, Uh, to the Jews that gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. So Pilate, he laughs. He says, truth, what's truth? I'm not, I don't care about the truth, Jesus. All I care about is, are you a threat to my power? 
That's what I want to know. That's the only thing I want to know. Jesus, are you a threat to my power? And this shows us what happens to the human heart when we are in the presence of power. See, every single human being, every single one of us, we have this deep need of self-affirmation in our lives that we need to prove to others. We need to prove to ourselves. And sometimes we feel like we gotta prove to God that we're so stinking worthy and so important. And nothing does that more than power. See, power is a way to affirm to the world and affirm to ourselves that we are known and we are important. And unfortunately, power feeds our ego in our identity. See, every one of us, we're empty on the inside. And so we need something that come to come along and to fill it with honor and significance and power and glory to make us feel important, to make us feel valuable, to make us feel loved, to make us feel significant. And many times we use power to fill that emptiness. And as a result, we will protect it at all costs. So that's why when you, when you read a headline about a scandal that, you know, seven years later, finally the truth has come out, that's usually the result of the men and women in power trying to keep their power. And they tried to keep it and they tried to work those details and the truth in such a way that they were able to remain in power because people will do anything to protect the power that they have. So that's the problem with power is it's misused. So what about the transformation of power? Let's go to chapter 19, verses one through 11. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged and beaten. Just, just, we'll talk more about this process next week. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail to the king of the Jews. And then they would slap him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews that had gathered there, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, Pilate said to them, here is the man. And as soon as the chief priest and the other officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. And the Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid because he's thinking power here. And he went back inside to the palace. And he says, where do you come from? He asked Jesus and Jesus gave him no answer. He says, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of even uh, of a greater sin. I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter five. He says, don't be conceited. 
quit exploiting one another. The word that Paul uses in the Greek when he writes conceited, it literally means empty of worth. And what Paul is saying to us, he's saying, don't be empty of worth because when you're empty of worth, you will exploit one another. So quit doing that. You see, we were built to get our worth from God. And just like God delights, or just like a child delights in the presence of their father, we are to delight in the presence of our heavenly father and get our worth from him. That we're to allow him to define who we are, not our power. That we're to allow him to define and who are we? We are chosen, we are holy, we are loved, we're beloved, we're richly and deeply and freely and completely, unconditionally loved by him. We're adopted sons and daughters of the one true king and we have all the rights and privileges and power and authority that go with the father's name. That's who we are. And we have the spirit of God living inside of us, pointing us to the truth, coming alongside of us, being our advocates as we walk through this life. That's where we need to get our worth. And when we see Jesus coming to empty himself of power and glory and not taking up power and glory for himself, when we see Jesus coming to live the life we can't live and die the death that we deserve, when we see Jesus dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, we begin to see just the depth of his love for us. And when we embrace the gospel and we say gospel, let's get on the same page, people, that it is the son of God coming to live the life we can't live, die the death that we deserve. And when we put our faith in him, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life and we have all the acceptance and approval and significance and hope and love and security that we need for this life and the life to come. And when we embrace that truth, when we embrace the gospel, power becomes something we can give away. Power becomes just a vehicle. It becomes a tool to serve others and bring glory to Jesus and not ourselves. That when we are being, are getting our worth from, from our Father in heaven based on who Jesus is and what he's done for us, who cares what they say about us? Who cares who gets the credit? Who cares if everybody knows I'm in charge or not? Who cares? Because we're using our power, we're leveraging it for others. What our culture desperately needs, and I'll say this as the band comes and just gets ready to to lead us into a time of response, but what our culture desperately needs are men and women and teenagers and kids who will be filled with the truth of the gospel, that the truth of Jesus will impact the way that we live and give and serve and talk and think, that our culture desperately needs teachers and coaches and first responders and students and salespeople and doctors and lawyers and business owners and employees and truck drivers and office administrators and and retirees and stay-at-home moms and counselors and everybody else 
to rise up and to live out the truth of who Jesus is. And when we do that, it doesn't mean that people around us who aren't Christians will become Christians. Maybe it means their life will be a little bit more tolerable. Maybe it means that they're more open to a conversation about who Jesus is. But at the very least, our lives and hearts will be changed because we're living according to his truth and not ours. That's what our world.